Welcome to Blockchain Won't Save the World, the podcast that aims to demystify blockchain and exponential technologies with real-world examples for beginners and experts alike. Because blockchain won't save the world. We will. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're going to talk about blockchain ecosystems and governance. And I'm joined by Marta Pikarska. She's the Director of Ecosystem for Hyperledger at the Linux Foundation and is a member of the Technical Governing Board for Sovereign Foundation. Marta, welcome to the show. Thank you, Anthony. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for the invitation. Great stuff. And ecosystems are really, really important to the open source community. And I'm really excited to talk more about what that means today. Firstly, let's start off with what does your role involve as an ecosystem director? So I've joined Hyperledger three and a half years ago and basically was one of the first people to actually uh, work in Hyperledger because Hyperledger itself is four years old. And very soon after Hyperledger was funded as a nonprofit project under the Linux Foundation, which is member driven and based, we realized that we need someone who can manage the interactions between our enterprise members, between the open source community and kind of help navigate this whole space. And we really didn't want to create an ecosystem. We wanted to have an ecosystem so that everybody would be treated equally and everybody would have the access to the same treatment, uh, which means for me on a day-to-day basis, interacting with our enterprise members, helping them understand what is happening, what is new, doing uh, all sort of webinars, case studies to tell the story of our members and help the world understand that DLTs are real. And there, there is a lot of skepticism around DLTs, but also there is a lot of stuff in production. And then interacting with our academic partners and up to recently uh, evangelizing Hyperledger and giving toxic conferences. But that's not really longer the case unless you count the virtual ones. We've moved quite seamlessly, actually, from those physical events to more of the digital webinar type stuff. I think people are gradually becoming used to, actually, it's easier to reach a wider audience. It's easier to get participation. You might even be able to get more of the message out virtually than you might be in person. So maybe that's a good thing. It's incredibly interesting to observe how the world is kind of accepting it. You can see it in all sorts of ways. So we are we have a meetup program. So every major city in the world has a meetup that is run by a volunteer. They gather together, you know, talk hyperledger, talk about new projects, all that kind of stuff. Now with lockdowns and lack of travel, these meetups are happening virtual. But that means that all of a sudden, various countries, various cities are connected. I was speaking the other day at a virtual meetup, which was supposed to be in Sweden, but we had participants from Africa, from Munich, from Canada, from all over the world, which was great. And then on the other hand, I'm, I am pretty impressed how we've been talking for years about telemedicine and online consultations. And all of a sudden, NHS just, you know, is running online as if it was everyone's daily life for a long time. Talking about those meetups and that engagement with the community, what are the objectives of the Hyperledger group with regard to getting out in the community? Our goals are mostly to create space to build open source enterprise grade distributed ledger technologies. And with that comes bringing the community together, providing the governance, the infrastructure for them to build it so we don't build anything ourselves. 
but also educating the public, making sure that there are no misconceptions, that the general public and people that want to learn about VLTs are able to get the knowledge that is objective. So we don't tend to promote only Hyperledger projects. We do believe in kind of an open tent uh, or a greenhouse approach where there are many projects that can be running in parallel. Quite often you'll hear us saying, you know what, with your use case, you probably are better off with Porta or with Quorum. We really believe that what Hyperledger does is great and definitely has loads of applications in enterprises as with any technology. DLTs have different flavors and uh, those flavors meet different requirements. And you mentioned governance within there. Obviously, the technology development and the different projects within the Hyperledger umbrella are constantly evolving. Could you give me some examples of what requires governance or what is being governed? Everything. While we all believe that, you know, blockchain solves the problems of governance, we can encode everything and it'll run automatically. Still, when we talk about consortiums and groups of people, we need conflict resolution. We need some kind of a strategy around how do we build this greenhouse. So Hyperledger has this interesting approach of kind of bringing any code base, any project, we think of it as a seed of idea. And anybody can come with a seed of idea to our community and say, I would like to plant it in your greenhouse. What do you think? And if the community thinks it's a great idea and then people come around and nurture the plant and water it and so on, it will bloom into some kind of a beautiful tree and everybody can benefit from its fruits. Of course, there is the other side of it. If nobody wants to take care of that plant or that seed, it will never grow and it will just die, which is also fine. We do understand that with this fast-paced world, there is no such thing as, you know, ultimate kind of settled state of the art. It will be evolving. It will be evolving for a very long time. So we have technical steering committee, which is, uh, consists of 12 vetted, elected uh, representatives of the developer community. So anybody who contributes code to Hyperledger can put themselves up for a vote to technical steering committee. You don't have to be a member of any sort. And that technical steering committee meets on a weekly basis. That the phone calls are open to everybody, so you can join the calls, you can listen in. And they discuss uh, aspects like, you know, accepting new projects, moving projects from incubation to active state, discussing all sorts of challenges that we have with creating the, the developer diversity, having good metrics around engagement and so on and so forth. And also kind of making sure that these code bases that sometimes are a bit overlapping developers feel comfortable working on them and they don't feel like they are competing with each other because with a kind of a greenhouse approach you can always have this problem of projects trying to compete for for love obviously there's a huge variety of ideas and experiences out there which are being contributed in who can contribute to the hyperledger projects anyone literally anybody. This is something that we are really, really hard working on. And this year is a year when we decided to really focus on contributions and engagement, because it's not only about the code. 
we love when people co contribute code and you can go to our wiki where you have contributor guides you have most projects have good first bugs so recommendations if you're a developer that is just starting how to which bugs to fix we love companies that come to us and say this is not working even if they can't fix it just knowing that there are bugs is really important but there's so much more that you can do there are special interest groups there are working groups where you can get engaged as a technologist or as a specialist. Special interest groups are focused on verticals. So we have healthcare where we have doctors and healthcare providers that have nothing to do with technology, but they see problems in, in this world that hopefully technology could solve. Similarly with trade finance or social impact even, things like that. Of course, there are things like contributing the documentation. So if you're learning and trying to go through, say, Hyperledger BESU, as you go, you can help develop the documentation and find where it's not coherent and just fix that. You can do translation. We have actually a team uh, in, from an Indian university that is translating all of the Hyperledger Fabric documentation as well as some of the edX courses to one of the Indian languages because they felt that this will make Fabric will be more approachable. That's amazing. And all of these groups are volunteers, right? Yeah, all of it was run by volunteers. Hyperledger staff is 10 people. <laughs> I know that it's, it's crazy when you think about it, but yeah, we are not even 10 people right now. And we are the only ones working full-time and getting paid. Everything else that happens, all of the governing board members, all of technical steering committee, developers, everything is based on volunteers. That's incredible. And what do you think compels people to join projects like this, the open source movement or Hyperledger specifically? That's an interesting question. I was actually giving a talk the other day at a conference where I had the opposite kind of question, which was, well, convince me that I should join open source projects. What do I get out of it? And it's a really tough question because it depends on who you are. For developers, I think the appealing factor is that open source, if you're developing open source, you're contributing to something that has a much longer lifespan. And you know that the greater the community, the longer, the longer the longevity of the project and that you are contributing to something that will be there for a very long time. On the other hand, more and more companies these days are not really asking you to do some kind of an interview. They just say, well, show me your GitHub repo and uh, judge by that. So working on open source projects means that you can kind of build your portfolio, just like an artist has to build their portfolio to get admitted to an art school. Same with developers. You have to have that set of code uh, contributions or projects that you can present. And that open source is a great space to do it and to kind of progress your knowledge and your involvement. If you start on your own on a, in a closed source project, you can't really get help from others. You know, you're not talking about your project, right? If you're joining something that is already ongoing or you're creating an open source project, you're opening the door to people that might be more experienced than you or smarter than you and will help you out. And then for companies, working with open source has quite a few advantages. And it's interesting because only with the emergence of a distributed ledger, companies realized how useful it is to work with open source and how beneficial it is. So obviously, you know, you get the code for free. 
but you get a code that is developed by a very varied group of people. So it's varied in terms of experiences and it's varied in terms of knowledge, but it's also varied in terms of geography or, you know, all sort of different human factors, which contribute to actually building better code. So it sounds like there's a few different elements there. There's a philanthropic component, which is saying I want to contribute to something bigger than myself. There's a learning perspective in saying, actually, this is important for my career as a developer or to get recognition of my skill set. For enterprises, they're contributing back code that they may have developed that may actually help them in future instances or future usage. And then there's actually providing multiple perspectives to a problem, which can help the overall solution be more robust or more defensible from peer review. So it's a lot in that. I wonder, could we take an example of a recent project? Because I'd love to know more about how a project goes from being a seed into the greenhouse fully, if we follow your analogy. And maybe cactus is a good example, keeping with the plant-based analogies, of course. (laughs) How does a new project come into being? Sure. So this is actually, cactus is a fascinating story, and I hope that we will be able to tell the world more about it. So we have Hyperledger Labs which is kind of an R&D space. So we have full-blown frameworks, tools, libraries, and then Hyperledger Labs is a space where if you have an idea or you hacked something during a codeathon or hackathon or whatever, and you want to continue working on it, then you can bring that code to labs. And the barrier to being accepted as a labs project is very low. You really just have to be under Apache 2.0 license and you have to find one person from the sponsors or lab stewards that will kind of vet you in. And these are all very approachable people. So you don't have to kind of, you know, worry that you will blank email them saying, I have this code idea and they won't even answer your email. They are very responsive and we make sure that these people are the friendliest people from Hyperledger community. So that's how actually Cactus started. It started as a kind of a collaboration um, idea between Accenture and Fujitsu. So both of those companies had their own internal projects that were touching upon interoperability and wanted to kind of, yeah, it was an integration framework. And they met at one of our events, actually, and representatives of both of those companies said, well, we have this project and you have that project. And they're kind of different, but they're going definitely in the same direction. So let's start a lab and let's see if we can actually merge those projects. Although they were quite different, they still wanted to avoid duplication of work. So that lab was called Blockchain Integration Framework, or BIF. And then they went to Arizona for our Hyperledger Global Forum in Phoenix. And basically, the majority of work happened there. So they were basically sitting in the sun while the talks were happening and just coding away. And so when they came back from Arizona, they decided that project is quite advanced and they actually don't want to have it as a lab anymore. They want to get more involvement, build a bigger community around it and get more kind of supervision and guidance from a technical steering committee. So they applied to become a full-blown project. And after 
quite a bit of discussion, I must say, because it's, you know, the kind of barrier to being accepted as a project is getting higher and higher at the more projects we have, because we don't want to have duplicates, we don't want to have projects that will never grow into those trees. But finally, it has been approved. And that's where the name cactus came from, because most of the work happened in Arizona, where there are a lot of cactus. That's a really good story. And I've been asked about three or four times just this week, why are they calling it cactus? Where do the names come from? So thank you for giving us an insight into how that works, because obviously there are a number of projects now. And as you said, the more that there are, the more problems we're trying to address at an ecosystem level, maybe the less there's going to be need for some of those other projects, because we're focusing on the really crunchy, significant ones. And I wonder from your perspective, as we look at Indie or Besu or Cactus or Fabric, is there a master strategy within Hyperledger for the types of programs we focus on next, or is it still organic? It is quite organic. There is some strategy. A lot of projects that are coming in, we seek them out. It's not necessarily that uh, companies or people come to us and say, we we would like to become a, a project. Usually these days we do ask people that have an idea for a project to go through labs because we want to kind of make sure that they understand the process, they are involved with the community and there is some kind of starting engagement. But those projects that we look like with Hyperledger Besu, we were working very closely with the Pegasus team to bring on Hyperledger Besu. It wasn't a straightforward, oh, you know, we don't know what to do with this code, let's uh, throw it at Hyperledger. We did want to combine the interesting aspects of a public permissionless network like Ethereum with bringing more kind of enterprise spin to it. And Pegasus team was doing exactly that. That was a project called Pantheon. And so we worked together trying to understand if there is a space in Hyperledger Greenhouse for a project like that. And clearly there was. We had Hyperledger Borrow, that was our first Ethereum virtual machine implementation that was working with uh, Tendermint. But we did want to have another project that would have pluggable consensus, that would be kind of more mature in some ways. So that's why we accepted it. When it comes to development of particular project in itself, so how Hyperledger Fabric defines their roadmap or how Hyperledger Sotos defines their roadmap, that is left up to the maintainers and we trust that the maintainers can take input from the community and will choose the right, the right directions or right features to be developed. There is not much governance from Hyperledger the greenhouse into projects. We are always there to help. We are always there to, we have a, uh, two community architects that closely monitor all of the projects and make sure that, you know, these are also open and friendly environments to join and to be part of, but we don't tell projects what features should be implemented next. So it is still really about the community and those who are maintaining the projects, which I find really interesting as a way to develop propositions, given that it is volunteer-based and completely open. I wonder, given you sit in both the Hyperledger world and also the Sovereign world, would you be able just to compare and contrast? Let me step back. For those who don't know Sovereign, 
firstly, could you give us a little bit of an introduction to Sovereign? Because I think it's one of the most interesting open source projects out there that isn't in the Hyperledger suite. And then secondly, what has it been like to develop the Sovereign proposition compared to some of the work that you do with Hyperledger? It's interesting that you say that uh, Sovereign is one of the more interesting offerings and it's not within Hyperledger because actually Hyperledger Indie is code base that was contributed by Sovereign and Evernum. And uh, Sovereign is the world's largest deployment of Hyperledger Indie. So they are very closely working with us. As a matter of fact, just recently, the Sovereign community has contributed a whole different project. So it's a sister project to Hyperledger that is called Trust Over IP. And that, that will be kind of developed and will be helping them grow that community. So Sovereign is a foundation. Its aim is to run the network and offer digital identity capabilities. And the model is that in order to join Sovereign, obviously you can be a developer, you can, you know, all of it is open source, there is no kind of closed source. And if you want to contribute to Sovereign, you basically contribute to Hyperledger Indie. But Sovereign bases its functionality by companies joining and becoming part of the network part of the verification system. And in Sovereign, we believe that governance is critical to universal interoperability, and it gives assurances by providing process and accountability. We created Sovereign to build a network for an identity meta system that will require building different entities together or bringing different entities together. So, and Hyperledger obviously is a very different thing where we want to kind of develop code bases. So not about deployment, but about building the code bases. Got you. It's really interesting. So there's already intertwining between Sovereign and Indy, which I was interested to hear more about. And then I wonder, is the developer approach different or is the engagement approach different with Sovereign as it is with Hyperledger? Really, I think that developer engagement in both cases is very similar. In fact, the election to the technical uh, governing board, as they call it, instead of technical steering committee, is exactly the same process. All of the the kind of the the, the way that sovereign works is quite strongly modeled on how Hyperledger works. So as a matter of fact, there is not much difference. From a developer perspective, there is not much difference in how does one contribute to Hyperledger Indie or other Hyperledger projects. Got you. So it feels like some of the best practices are there or it's a fairly common approach to engage in the community. It's just that the grouping or the mission or the, in some cases, the governance might be slightly different. I wonder if you can share with us some of your learnings from maintaining these ecosystems, managing events, maybe even managing some of the challenges, the conflicts, the differing ideas, because one thing I can talk about from personal experience is as soon as you get two or three different architects together, there are going to be some strong opinions and they are going to be different. Um, And it always requires some degree of mediation or management. What are some of the things that you'd love to share with the audience around the best way to manage an ecosystem? You know, we we are still learning as we're going here. I'm not sure that I can say what is the best way of managing an ecosystem. It is very important to create a kind of all are welcome here approach and strategy. It is incredibly important not to just say that, oh, we want to have diversity or we want to build something. 
it has to be a very proactive space where you look for diverse community. You in- introduce people and invite people that are, wouldn't necessarily even think of joining Hyperledger or any ecosystem because they don't feel that there is a fit for them. So making sure that you reach out to a very diverse community and then having a code of conduct and making sure that people adhere to that code of conduct is very important. And of course, there is a role for people like me, like our community architects to monitor it. But that's more kind of making sure that everything runs smoothly and picking those single situations or rare situations where, in fact, we do need to have a side chat with someone. And we do encourage um, everyone to call us or write us an email if they feel like they've been mistreated or their code of conduct was broken. You know, a lot of the successful ecosystem comes from not really from managing the ecosystem, but from the people that are part of it. And that is both true for developer community as when you talk about same with enterprise consortias, where quite often you will see consortias being built by one or two very big companies that don't grow then. The consortium won't grow because the small companies will be afraid of joining two giants already kind of competing with them on the market and now having to be part of of that consortium. So you need to make sure that in that case, the governance model is created in such a way that the rights of the weakest are also protected. That's a really good insight. And I love the parallel between the enterprise consortia and also the project themselves, because it's still a human activity. It's still a human challenge. And whether you're a lowly developer or whether you're one of the largest tech houses in the world, your opinion is equally valid and you have a right to contribute. So it's great that you highlight that as really important. I'd love to double click on some of your personal experience now, if that's okay. I know you're not allowed to have favorites uh, and I know you've been working across a number of different Hyperledger projects and Sovereign as well. But could you give us some anecdotes or some of your experiences and learnings from some of the blockchain projects you've worked with? Sure. So I think one of my favorite stories is with Hyperledger Caliper, because that project actually came from the working group, performance and scalability working group. Quite often when you think about different working groups and special interest groups, there is this feeling that they are there just to talk and maybe produce a kind of a random white paper, but they don't really do anything. And I was very impressed observing how performance and scalability working group went from writing a white paper, but then deciding that they do want to contribute code and work on uh, something that will be a benchmarking tool, kind of benchmarking for performance and scalability, not to tell you what, you know, if Hyperledger Fabric is better than Hyperledger Saltus, but rather that this given setting of your network running Hyperledger Fabric, uh, when you have your nodes distributed here and, you know, and this is the throughput that you have, that's how it will scale, that it was how it will perform. And then you can experiment actually with different settings to get the best performance. Because really, when we talk about the, you know, TPS, uh, magic TPS number, that really depends. If you have all nodes in one room, 
that will be very different to all of those nodes spread out in different parts of the world. So this is a really great uh, example of how a working group can contribute something very valuable to the community. Another one is Hyperledger Iroha. I like this one because it's probably the best hidden secret within Hyperledger community. Uh, Hyperledger Iroha is actually one of our more mature frameworks. It is developed mostly in Asia Pacific, but they are actually one of the few real world and active implementations of basically a CBDC. They've done a project with Central Bank of Cambodia and introduced a CBDC based on Hyperledger Iroha. So it's a great, um, great way to also see how different paths our projects going into. And then finally, I guess I would highlight Hyperledger Ursa just because of my security background. I do like cryptography. Um, that was an engagement that happened again over a couple of coffees during our member summit and a few people coming together and saying, well, the first rule of security is don't implement your own crypto, as in cryptography, not crypto, as in cryptocurrency. And you do need to have references. You have that all the time with various APIs that you're using in software. But we were lacking those kind of libraries in the blockchain space or in the serial ledger space. So our security maven, Dave Husby, together with some people from, from our community, sat together and decided to build Hyperledger Ursa first as a lab and then they moved to be a full-blown project or a library that aims to deliver standard cryptography to all of the projects so that you can reuse the, those components without having to worry about how to implement it. So ideally we want Hyperledger Ursa to become not only pluggable within our greenhouse, but also being used by projects outside of Hyperledger Greenhouse. Thank you for those. And it's really interesting to hear the humble beginnings of all of these sorts of projects. They're dealing with really challenging things, right? Implementing a central bank digital currency in Cambodia, no small feat, or being able to have pluggable cryptography, starting off with a couple of people sat around a table having a coffee. Obviously, these are where great ideas are spawned from. But for those to then become global open source projects with significant scale, I find really fascinating. I wonder from your perspective, are there any projects out there that we need next? Are there any problems or challenges within DLT or within blockchain or within any of the work that we're doing that you think we might need to get off the hopper next? Mm, well, I do think that obviously interoperability uh, needs working on. But I think one of the first things is that we need to define how do we want to actually work around interoperability because there are so many different ways you can think about it. You know, you have atomic swaps between different chains. You have different DLTs talking to each other or different kind of consortia chains talking to each other but being built on the same uh, framework uh, using the same code base. So I think that this is an important element. The other thing that obviously uh, I spend loads of time thinking about is governance and how can we encourage enterprise consortiums to build on-chain governance, which is not happening right now. There are very few consortiums that I know of that actually implement an on-chain governance. 
otherwise they are just same as every day they are using very simple off-chain or human governance where there is one party or a committee that approves new members and resolves any conflicts and so on and so forth so uh, having a framework or a way to encode this would be very interesting and i would hope that we will be able to build a project around that at least you know if if not a code project then a set of best practices and guidances for how to how to do this i love that one and obviously we follow the make a doubt project quite closely and at least in the enterprise DLT space, being able to get into you know fully autonomous on-chain governance is definitely, definitely one of those concepts that people who are never used to working in this space will find utterly terrifying as a start. But to be able to make that more accessible through the open source community or having a framework, at least for helping people think it through so that they're not alone or it can become more accessible, I think is really helpful and really useful. Marta, it's been fascinating to hear some of your insights. I'm sure we could talk about more of these and do a project by project deep dive for (laughs) hours and hours on end, but we're going to try and keep it relatively short today. I want to say before you go, thank you again for sharing your ideas. How can people find out more about the work that you're doing, more about Hyperledger and Sovereign, and what else have you got going on in your life? Uh, well, you know, there's not much going on in my life during lockdown other than my standing desk or walking desk over my treadmill. Uh, but uh, if you want to learn more about Hyperledger and different projects, actually, I've just finished uh, working with our videographer on series of videos that are talk about how to get involved and what are different special interest groups and projects doing. So these are kind of three minute short clips where the members of community talk about the projects that they are working on, which is really cool. So you can go to our Hyperledger YouTube channel and uh, you can watch all of them there. We have also all the recordings of the Hyperledger Global Forum talks that happened this year, uh, as well as our webinars. So if you're looking for more engaging uh, on a more interactive level with people that are actually building on Hyperledger, then tune into our webinar series. It happens on every first and third Wednesday uh, of the month. And more information is obviously available on our website. So for developers, go to wiki.hyperledger.org. For business people, go to hyperledger.org. And if you want to learn more, we also have some free online open source courses that are delivered on the edX platform. And these are around identity. These are around general DLTs and kind of getting started with all five of Hyperledger frameworks. So Sawtooth, Fabric, Indie, Iroha. So these are the ways that you can learn more about Hyperledger. And I also hear a rumor that you're writing a book. I am. I am. Yeah, that's <laughs> oh, that's actually yes. I'm, that's I've been spending quite a lot of time on it. Indeed, yes, I am writing a book on uh, distributed ledger technologies in action. So surprise, surprise, it's not a book about Hyperledger. I have a very good co-author who is doing his PhD and at Cambridge University, and we decided that we want to write a book that will be a bit more versatile. Because there are a lot of workbooks out there that will teach you all about Ethereum or Hyperledger Fabric and uh, Sawtooth. And we didn't want to pretend like we have the knowledge and the experience of some of the maintainers of those projects. 
We wanted to build a book that will be valuable for anybody that wants to understand how do you build distributed ledger technology-based system within the concept. So you need to understand the concept of consensus. You don't need to, we won't teach you how to, you know, write a poet or a YAC consensus or raft protocols. We will teach you what are the differences and how can you decide which consensus is the best. Same with smart contracts and all sort of other things. So we are very technology agnostic. Uh, The book is very kind of, it is quite technical. It is aimed at people who are developers. So every chapter has loads of exercises. And uh, yeah, I was very excited because I thought always that, you know, it's fun to, to write a book, but it was always kind of a question if it will ever get published. And after the initial reviews that the Manning Publishing House had with some of the developers, they decided to put us in an early access program, which means that you can actually read the book chapter by chapter as we write it and give us feedback. So contribute back to to the book so that it gets even better. That's awesome. So we're even applying open source principles to how you write your own book. That's a really nice poetic way to think about you moving into personal content creation. Marta, thank you again for joining the show. I hope the book release goes really well. We'll make sure we put the links to all of that, your social and all of the Hyperledger content in the description so that people can get access to it. Have a great rest of your day and thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast. All opinions here expressed are those of myself and my guests. If you're looking for more, you can follow me on LinkedIn for more blockchain-related content. And until next time, stay safe out there.